0: We are back for another very special episode of the official SASTA podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat and the one and only godfather of SAS himself, Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on Twitter. And if you want to join Jason and I at SASTA Annual 2018 and even have mojitos with me, I can taste the mint already, then all you have to do is head over to drinkswithharry.com. That's drinkswithharry.com. And not only do you get a limitless supply of mojitos, but 10% off the ticket price. I was personally sold on the mojitos, but Jason has been too kind with that one. However, to the show today, and what a show we have for you as we welcome Andy Byrne, founder and CEO at Clary, the startup that helps sales teams drive more revenue and increase forecast accuracy through improved deal execution and predictive analysis. And they've raised over $30 million in VC funding from some of the best in the business, including Sequoia and Bain Capital Ventures. Prior to Clary, Andy was part of the founding exec team at Clearwell Systems, which he helped grow from pre-product and pre-revenue in 2005 to a $100 million run rate until its acquisition by Symantec in 2011. Prior to joining Clearwell, Andy co-founded Timestock, acquired by Computer Associates via the acquisition of Wiley Technology. I do also have to say a huge thank you to RF at Sequoia for the intro to Andy today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we move into today's episode, if you're a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want, and you also get a continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there, and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, time to pet the premier pet sitting software platform that delivers everything one needs to manage a small or large pet sitting or dog walking business. Its mobile first design handles client management. Yes, we're talking about both the pets and their humans, staff management, reporting, payments, and all the financial aspects of running the business. And you can learn more at timetopet.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Time to Pet did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. WePay has got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. And as I said, you can get it at We pay.com forward slash sasta but enough from me so i'm now thrilled to hand over to andy byrne founder and ceo at clary good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up andy it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today i've heard so many wonderful things from rf so thank you so much for joining me today
1: great to be here harry thanks for taking the time
0: not at all but i'd love to kick off today with a little on you and how you made your way into the world of SaaS and came to found clary
1: yeah, sure. So before Clary, actually, the team here had been involved in building a, a previous company that was doing machine learning from 2004 to 2011. Uh, it was a company called Clearwell Systems. We were doing natural language processing and machine learning on large volumes of enterprise data to allow some a large company to respond to a, a litigation issue or a securities investigation. And that was a great company. We grew that to $100 million in revenue. And then we were acquired by Symantec in June of 11. We were there, took a little bit of a break, and we got the band back together, as it were, and got the core team from Clearwell together. And our thesis for Clary was that we believed, and this was back in January of 2013, that machine learning was going to make a massive difference in enterprise software. And so we went to Sequoia Capital, who is our largest shareholder. They led our Series A. And with that thesis in mind, and we're now we're off to the races. Four and a half years later, over 200 deployments at some of the best companies in the world, and um, excited to be chatting with you more today.
0: Well, I think from interviewing over a thousand VCs, your thesis on ML was not only incredibly insightful but ahead of the time. So, a big congratulations on that. But yeah, I- yeah, yeah, you know, I would say
1: that you know, it's definitely not clairvoyant. It's more just a, a little bit of luck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I highly doubt that you're being far too <laughs> modest. I do want to discuss one theme though today. That a lot of early stage founders have have problems with and, and one that I think you've mastered over your kind of time with Clearwell and Clary and it's the ability to kind of land those big whales when you're essentially still a small startup so I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts first on the importance of landing big whales as a startup how important is it when you're small and should it not be a case of just getting as many logos as you can yeah I think it depends on the type of business that you want to
1: build and you know it all starts with the type of product that you're building for customers for us in the life- of our company, we, out of the shoe, both at Clearwell and also Clary, had designed our go-to-market to get large logos, large north-of-six-figure deals from the very beginning. There's definitely a lot of companies that start small and will, with smaller ASPs of 1500 bucks or $5,000, whatever it might be, eventually they're going to find their way to, if they really want to scale the company, they're going to find their way up market and they're going to try and start landing bigger deals that are north of 100k For us, our journey at both companies was we started from the very beginning because of the product footprint that we built was delivering enough value that we could be charging north of 100 dollars to $250,000. It was commensurate with the value that we had delivered.
0: So talk to me then. What are the tips in terms of being that kind of very early one figure size company uh, in terms of landing those big whales? What are those tips both in terms of kind of having the, the credibility and the ability to land those big whales?
1: Yeah, I guess for, I I get this question all the time and I work with a myriad of other startups about how to go about getting yourself in a very strong position to land large companies and, and wonderful logos. One is, actually has nothing to do with sales. It has everything to do with your image and I call it look larger than life. You need to make sure that your website is designed, which is your number one marketing piece, is designed in a way that makes the company look bigger than it actually is with, you know, quotes from, colleagues, from possible partners designed in a way that that is showcasing your product, your vision. That's number one. It starts there because when you're hunting these large companies that where you don't have your brand has no power, you have no credibility, they're going to go immediately to your website. And that website needs to resonate with them, not in only the vision, but the company needs to feel incredibly not like you're on a shoestring budget, if you will. Why is that important? It's important because the customer's Taking a risk, and and if they see that the website looks not as great and a little bit of a like a small on a shoestring budget operation, they're less likely to spend more time with you. So that's number one. Look larger than life. Number two is when your product is early on; it's in its infancy, and you can only show so much to these early prospects, and you don't have the fully built-out product. So what you need to do is show them a longer term vision that actually shows that A, you can solve a tactical pain right now that is maybe commensurate with them parting with $20,000 a year on an annual subscription. But B, then you need to show them that here is the vision of the product over time that gets them to potentially forward invest in that vision. The rest of the product is not quite there yet, but they see a path to solve a larger problem set for them. So you hit them with a real product that solves a tactical pain. You showcase the long-term vision that is going to solve a much larger pain that equals more value. And thus, you're putting yourself in a strong position to be able to actually claim them as a customer and at a high dollar amount. Does that make
0: sense? It makes absolute sense. I'm going to let you run through them and then I'm going to dive into each one because I have so many questions. (laughs) The third is what I call you need to create theater.
1: And I remember talking to a young company, Sequoia back company, where the founder was saying, how do you go in with not a lot of product, Andy, and show them that and convince them to spend more time with you and get an early prototype in their environment. And I mentioned to them, you know, you have to create this theater and showcase what we do is in PowerPoint or in any sort of slides or screenshots. You can even do this, there's lots of products out there that allow you to do this, that you actually, the product actually looks like it's working. It's live today. It's real and in production. And the customer knows that it's not ready for prime time, but they actually, instead of having a bunch of slides, one or two screenshots and saying, this is what it could be. You do the design work up front and you actually showcase and produce this theatrical moment where you're going through a day in the life of the user of the product and how it would solve their problem. And that theater allows them to understand, hey, this is what my life will be like. It'll be so much easier. And that gets them to understand that this is a really powerful concept. I can not only imagine it, but I can actually see it manifested in what you just showed me. And I can't wait to use it and get my fingertips on the product. So that's number three, what I call creating theater.
0: Mm-hmm. That tangible four, element.
1: A tangible element. Number four is what I call surprise with speed. Well, what does that mean? Surprise with speed means I'm going to show you a product. We've got to this point where now I can implement the product and you can use a portion of the product. And Harry, you say to me, this is awesome. This is great. But you guys are missing the following things for my set of use cases. And we say, OK, that's great. Well, if I come back in a month, would you spend more time with us if I knock that out? And they say, well, yeah, of course. Right. Because they're, they've already leaned in. Because we've created theater, they see the long-term vision. We feel like we're we're larger than life, and so they say, "Of course, yeah, that'll be great. Let's talk in a month." And what we do is we actually call them two weeks back, two weeks later, and we say, "Hey, we actually ready now. It's not going to take thirty days. We knocked it out. Can we come in?" And you surprise them with the speed of your execution that gets them to say, "This is a really special company that can execute incredibly well," and they listen very, very carefully. And now I don't view you as the customer, as the prospect, I'm not really viewing you as a vendor. This is a really important point. There is a switch that happens where the prospect views you as not a vendor, but actually as a partner in their process of trying to solve these really hard problems. When you make that switch, now you've got them. And and it's not a clever thing. You've actually earned it. You've totally earned the right to actually be part Partnering up with them and they spend more time with you and then you iterate you surprise with speed multiple times to get to a point where they're ready to buy and they're excited and they want to make an investment now the final piece is that it's one thing for someone to say hey i'm ready to buy it's five thousand dollars okay cool where, where do i sign you know i'll just do it online it's another thing to say okay we've gone through this journey together in our partnership harry and i've been surprising you with all the speed you know we've been talking to other people internally your company they're all really excited about it and have we earned the right to talk about commercials yes you have okay awesome now for us when we talk commercials and you're starting to talk about a figure that's $100,000 $250,000 etc that's a big risk for any organization whether you're dealing with a small company or a big company there's a lot of money to be parting with so what you can do as a young company is you can put elements into the contract that reduce the risk for for the prospect. And elements such as, look, why don't you sign this order agreement and we are going to put a clause in the agreement that says within 90 days, if you don't like it, you can terminate. It's called the Terminate for Convenience Clause, TFC. You can never do this as a publicly traded company or someone that's much more mature in their life cycle. But early on, you can do these things. And what's really nice about these elements, whether it's TFC, giving them 90 days, saying, hey, we'll give you a re- back is that that person can go to the finance person and say, Hey, look, there's no risk. You know, yes, it's 250 K, but we have 90 days. And if 90 days, we don't believe that they've actually delivered 250 K worth of value, then we'll terminate the contract and we won't accept. And so that allows the person that you're selling to again, they view it as a partnership. They, it's an amazing contractual relationship. And then you as the vendor, you're on the hook to deliver and to earn it. And then we go all in, we deploy, we train people, they love the product. And then in 90 days, we say to the prospect, how are we doing? They say, Amazing. This is going to be a career changing moment for me. I'm so glad I spent this time with you, and I'm so glad we spent this money. We're all good. And then we invoice the customer. So that's what we call removing the risk.
0: Absolutely. So let's go back to larger than life one. In terms of being larger than life and having that appearance, what happens when it gets to them assessing cash on balance? And maybe larger than life doesn't apply to financial situation.
1: Yeah, a lot we get those questions all the time, right? And they'll say, Oh, let tell me about your financial viability, tell me about your balance sheet. And, you know, for us, I mean, obviously for smaller companies that are not well capitalized, it, it's a challenge for us. You know, we simply say to them, you know, we've got a lot of capital that's been raised over money from Sequoia, money from Bain Capital, et cetera, fairly significant amount. It's You can see it online. It's all out there. And we tell them, you know, we've got operating capital that lasts us for the next 48 months of the life of the company. So we're in a very strong position from a balance sheet standpoint standpoint, we say, if you'd like to talk to our CFO, happy to get you engaged with our CFO. And that typically gets them comfortable. One point I I do want to make that's really an interesting point that's lost in this that I I, I neglected to mention. You have to find that customer and that person within the customer that is the early adopter, right? So you can't go sell your first application to John Deere tractors back in in the Midwest. You're going to be selling to HP that is used to deploying early technology and the person that's in there is more risk-oriented. They're not risk-averse. So that's a very important point in the selling process here because if you have a company that's used to spending and experimenting on technology to better their operational efficiency and you're with an individual that just you can tell, you can feel that they're a risk-taker, then this process goes more smoothly. If you are with a company that is in the late majority of Jeffrey Moore's hype buying cycle, or you're with a person that's incredibly conservative that doesn't have a track record of analyzing new technology and purchasing new technology, then this is going to be super, super hard.
0: I do have another question with regards to the long-term vision that you said about kind of the importance of articulating. I'm intrigued. How do you balance long-term vision with short-term objective attainment?
1: I mean, it's pretty straightforward, actually. Short-term tactical objectives and milestones are tied to the long-term vision. Period. So if anybody is executing on a short term tactical objective and, and they are not clear on how it's tied to the long term vision, then as an executive staff, we have not done our job right? So how do you do that inside of a company? So first of all, you're always calibrating everybody on the long-term vision and there's messaging associated with the long-term vision and you have perfected that messaging. And just like a politician that's always staying on message and constantly beating the drum of here is the vision. Here's our belief. Here's where we're headed. Here is the five or 10 year journey. You need to do that as a CEO. So everyone is always calibrated on, right. Okay. That's why I'm here. That's why I came to the company. so excited about that vision. And then with that, you're always every 90 days, you're forcing your executive team to get up in front of the all hands and say, here are my top three things in my department that map to that vision that I am laser focused on. And that's what happens. And and every department is calibrated on the top three every 90 days that map to the long-term vision. And in department meetings, that department head is holding everybody accountable to their deliverables that map to their top three every 90 days. And everything is measurable and accountable.
0: I do do want to make into one of my favorite elements of any interview being the quick fire round, the 60 seconds faster. So 60 seconds per statement. How does that sound? Yeah, uh, sure. So what hires do you wish you'd made earlier with Clary? None, because, you know, every single person that joined us
1: early on was from our last company. I mean, my e-staff, the average tenure of working with me is 15 years. Three of my e-staff members, we've worked together for 25 years. Our kids know each other. They play together. We're family. So there wasn't anybody that we wished we had hired early we all have worked together for a very long time
0: recruiting in the valley these days how tough and any top tips
1: super tough my tip as it relates to specifically engineers that you're hiring that could easily walk into google or linkedin or facebook or airbnb or uber is that if you want to be a great engineer and a great entrepreneur you go to a, a young company a young growing company like clary where You'll learn not only how to be a great engineer and work with super talented people, but you'll see the movie that plays out, the entrepreneurial movie, and understand what it's like to build the company because you get, you feel like you're making a massive impact. You have full transparency from the CEO and everything that's going on in the business. Your learning curve as an entrepreneur is massive. If you go to the larger companies, you're going to be a great engineer, but you're not going to learn anything about entrepreneurship and about building companies from scratch. And that's okay. So, you know, that's. That's that's the difference. That's my tip.
0: What's been the biggest challenge for you in building Clary? Yeah, so the biggest challenge for me
1: as a leader is in building the company is the context switching that is required as a CEO and the emotional strength that's required. As a CEO, whether you're in a small company or a big company, you're always dealing with something that is not going quite right, something that's broken, something it could be a personnel issue. It could be a customer issue. It could be a myriad of things. And I think the most challenging thing for me that I've been you know, perfecting over the last four and a half years as a CEO is to have that emotional strength to go from a person that you're terminating that's not been performing well, that you really like it's a good human being, but that is a bummer, to a all-hands meeting where you need to be super excited and get everybody riled up to a customer issue where they're disappointed And then right after that, and you're trying to solve the problem for the customer, right after that you're going to an investor meeting Mm -hmm. and you're having to make these emotional context switches all over the place.
0: Well, that's just too tempting for me. So moving out of the quickfire round, I do want to discuss kind of emotional readiness for aspiring CEOs. And as you said, they're building that mental fortitude to context switch. So I'm intrigued to hear what you've learned as to kind of build that up yourself and how you look to do that and lead and inspire as much as to build the product.
1: Yeah, sure. So you know, being a CEO and being emotional ready is is something that I've been studying for the last four and a half, five years of my life. When I started, Clary, I, I spent time with Jim Getz, who's a partner over at Sequoia. And he said, are you ready, Andy, to be a CEO of a incredibly fast growing, exciting company and started from scratch? And I said, well, of course, I'm ready. He said, I know. Are you ready? But are you emotionally ready? And, and I said, yes, of course. I'm ready. I didn't fully appreciate what Jim meant at the time until about three years in. Uh, Three years in, you know, I really understand what he meant, which is as a CEO, part of your role is you're Mr. or Mrs. Fix It or Miss Fix It. You are um, constantly going around working with things. There's always something that's not working well, and that is tough. As someone that is a perfectionist and you want to see remarkable execution, that is super hard to deal with. That there's always something. Something that's not working well. So you're running around trying to enable people to fix problems, to go from scrappy startup to machine-like to machine actual, right, and going through those spectrums and getting every single department out to that that machine actual is an emotional roller coaster that you have to deal with. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of multitasking involved in that. The second thing that I've learned over the last five years here, people that come to the company, they say, um, they ask me, you know, well, why you why do you do what you do? Why, why why do you love being the CEO? And why do you love startups? My answer when I first interviewed people when we had about about five or 10 people. My answer was this. It was, I love doing what I'm doing because we get to create something from nothing. And who gets to do that? Who gets to get venture capital, an idea that's with a bad whiteboard pen and a bad whiteboard and take it from a whiteboard drawing to a concept, to a prototype, to a real product, to a real value, to happy customers, to scale. That's just an amazing thing. But my answer has now changed. Now that we're coming up on over 200 deployments, I've got roughly, you know, just north of 80 employees. Now, my answer is what I love about what I do is I love seeing the growth of people. My number one job as a CEO, it's not necessarily product strategy, go to market strategy and ensuring that, you know, sales execution, We you have to do all of that, but you hire people to do that stuff. My job is to create an environment that people love, where they love to come to work and they feel like a, their learning curve is massive. B the culture is just a place that they thrive in and they love. C, they're making a massive impact. And D, they feel like they are building their career platform. And and so I'm always analyzing as a CEO, is that environment there for everybody? And if it's not, I try and make sure that we adjust, fix things. So every single employee feels like those four factors are in their favor. And if I can do that, and if I can hire the right people and build the right right environment you know i've done my job because that this equates to the company being super successful and scaling
0: i want to say that a huge thank you for giving up the time today to be on the show as i said i had so many great things from rf so thank you so much yeah, for thanks it. harry and again, a huge thanks to Andy for giving up his time today and sharing the incredible journey of Clary with us. And again, a big thank you to Arif at Sequoia for the intro to Andy's day, without which this episode would not have been possible. And if you'd like to see incredible interviews like this in person, then head over to SASTA Annual 2018 and join me and Jason for mojitos. All you have to do is head over to drinkswithharry.com. That's drinkswithharry.com. And not only do you get the limitless supply of mojitos, but also 10% off your ticket price. It really is a must. That's drinkswithharry.com. But before we leave you today... If you are a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations, as Andy said. Hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one performance management solution for growing companies. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 performance review cycles as often as you want. And you also get a continuous feedback system with OKR goal tracking, real-time feedback, and one-on-one meetings to make sure employees get feedback between reviews. So find out why the likes of Coinbase, PlanGrid, Birchbox, and WePay Trust Lattice as their performance management solution by heading over to Lattice.com to start investing in your people. That's Lattice.com, the number one performance management solution for growing companies. And we mentioned WePay there, and it's thanks to my friends at WePay that I can introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, time to pet the premier pet-sitting software platform that delivers everything one needs to manage a small or large pet-sitting or dog-walking business. It's mobile-first design, handles client management. Yes, we're talking both pets and their humans, staff management, reporting, pet- payments, and all the financial aspects of running the business. And you can learn more at timetopet.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Time to Pet did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. WePay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Simply head over to wepay.com forward slash sasta to find out more. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.